Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. This is yet another conference takeaway podcast, and once again, I find myself back in sunny Scotland. This time, this time, I am in Glasgow at the High School of Glasgow, which today has hosted another of Mark McCourt's LaSalle Maths Conferences. This is MathsConf 16. It's been a jam-packed day, full of ideas, thought-provoking as ever. So I'm here to reflect upon the day, but this podcast couldn't happen without the help of a co-host, and I've got a very special one lined up for you today. So I am very happy to introduce Mr. Stuart Welsh. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Craig, and uh, welcome back to Scotland. Welcome to Glasgow. Thank you. I'm becoming a regular here. I'm a big, big fan of it. It's your second home now. It is, it is. <laughs> now, Stuart, just tell the uh, listeners a little bit about yourself. So I've been teaching mathematics in Scotland for the last 12 years, and I've been head of maths here at the high school for the last five years. I um, can be found on Twitter, at Maths180, and uh, I have a website of uh, video lessons for National 5 and for higher maths, which is uh, at maths180.com. And this, like you were saying in your session, which we'll get to at the end, your website's really kind of gone through the roof in terms of um, visitors and, and views of your videos and stuff, right? Like, how long has it been going for? It's been on the go in various forms for about six years now, and uh, it's just grown and grown. Uh, originally, it was really just a, a place where I put some practice exams up for the National 5 qualification that was introduced about six years ago. There wasn't really much practice around, and I felt that uh, um, I, w- I, w- I would be able to help there by putting up half a dozen practice exams. So they're still popular, although that qualification has been going for a few years now, so there's maybe not so much need for those. And then over time, I, I, I sort of learned about the blended learning in the flipped classroom, and so I've put uh, all my lessons for National 5 and for Higher uh, online, which are free to use uh, for anybody that wants to. Also through that website over the last few years, I've been running live online virtual tutorials where we work through sort of past exam questions, exam type questions, and uh, pupils from all over the country, in fact from all over the world, can join the, the virtual room where they can ask questions through a Q&A window. I usually have a co-host who will answer their questions in the background while I'm working through on the screen um, past exam type questions. Flipping it. And there'd be nothing stopping, like I know it's obviously Scottish specific in terms of the qualification it's aimed towards, but there's nothing stopping people from England dipping in students and maths teachers alike and getting something out of it. Not at all. No, everybody's welcome to use it. And uh, I know that the the courses don't necessarily align exactly, but uh, a lot of the maths is is very transferable. And as long as you can put up with a Scottish accent, (laughs) then uh, anybody is uh, more than welcome to to use it. Oh, I do. And that's maths180.com. Absolutely, Adam. Super. Right. So, um, the day started off uh, with Mark McCall banging on about his, his usual stuff. And then I was um, on, as, on, on as the keynote. And my session was my ref, um, reflect, expect, check, my take on um, intelligent practice or intelligent variation in mathematics. My controversial set, uh, uh, talk, because some people don't like it. Uh, some people don't think it is in the spirit of variation theory and so on and so forth. But I um, explained, uh, and listeners may well have, have, have heard me talk about this before or see me in action, but I explained the concept of reflect, expect, check, the mathematical behaviour I, I want to develop in my students. And then I went through three of the practice activities, one on percentage of an amount, one on solving linear equations, and one, a new one, on uh, factorising quadratics. And it's about, and you, you, t- you uh, touched upon this in, in your session, Stuart, there's no way of avoiding practice in mathematics. Kids have to do practice. And what, what was the Tom Sherrington thing you said? Slop. Slop. Shared loads of practice. Shared loads of practice. And I like this. I'm of the, the firm belief that kids have to practice. They have to practice maths to get good at maths. Whether you use the phrase of fluency or automaticity or whatever, kids have to practice the maths. There's no shortcut for me for that. So I'm just trying to make the maths as, if I don't know if intelligence is the right word, but as I'm going to use it as intelligent as possible so that... As well, they're not on autopilot. We're throwing them off autopilot and making them focus on what's changed, what stays the same, and what effect it's had on the answer. 
And then we also looked at a different type of activity, the rule-based ones, where I look to introduce a concept or um, a definition, but do it in a hopefully a more interesting way that makes more sense to the kids. So I looked at how I would introduce the concept of a prism, and then I did a brand new one which looked at um, algebraic proof, deciding whether ex algebraic expressions are always positive, always negative, or either for different uh, constraints within the variable. So, <laughs> I mean, if you say it was absolute crap, Stuart, this could be a very short podcasting, but uh, was there any thoughts on the session, um, anything that you uh, like didn't make sense or anything you picked up on? Because I'm, I'm always fascinated by this. No, Craig, I thought your, your keynote made, made a lot of sense and I've, I've heard you talk about these things before and what I, what I particularly like is that you are using that phrase intelligent practice because I think that does separate uh, what you're doing a little bit from variation theory and there's possibly a, a little bit of a danger that people have grabbed hold of variation theory and have maybe gone a wee bit crazy with it. Uh, we don't necessarily need uh, loads, of workshop, uh, loads of worksheets where we've got, say, solving a linear equation which is... Um, x plus 5 equals 7, x plus 5 equals 8, x plus 5 equals 9, because the, the learners just end up seeing a pattern there rather than actually thinking about the, the steps that are involved. So what I like about your intelligent practice is that every three or four questions, sometimes even just every two questions, something again changes that throws them off. So the idea of sort of disrupting the the, the, the automaticity, just disrupting the thought, making them feel uncomfortable, I think is, is very powerful. And I particularly liked um, the definitions, this mm. idea that you went through with the prisms and just really uh, encouraging the learners to think, well, how does this classify? Is this an example of this case? Is this a non-example? And the use of non-examples there was very powerful. And the work, the, the, the Scottish exclusive, very excited <laughs> that it was unveiled in Glasgow. Um, the, the work you were doing on proof, I thought was fascinating. This idea of uh, you were substituting a, a, a value into an expression and then saying, will this, will this always be positive, sometimes positive or, or negative, was, um, was really powerful again and, and sort of a nice way into proof. Yeah, I think, and the point I was trying to make with the proof, um, and again, I'm, I'm just repeating it, so I apologise here, Stuart, is that the mistake I've made with proof in the past is I've taught it as a single concept. So I have taken an algebraic expression and a G, uh, an exam question will be prove that this is always a multiple of four, or prove that this expression is always even, or prove it's a square number. And I've started with, I've said, okay, okay, kids, here we go. So first, what are we going to do with this? Well, we're going to simplify it, then we're going to factorize it. And now we've got our final expression. How do we know it's always even? Or how do we know it's always a square number? But the point I make there is that by the time the kids have got to that point, potentially, they're, they're knackered. They're, they're, whether you use the phrase of working memory, cognitive overload or whatever, they've had to endure quite a bit of maths to get to that point. So it's almost... What's actually a really critical part of the process, deciding what this expression you've got to actually means, that's almost lost because kids have been expanding so much thought on everything that's gone before it. So, I mean, you made the point yeah, just before we started recording that um, the atomized approach to learning has been a real theme of the day. And that's what I want to do with proof. I want to break it down. Instead of it being this single process from a, an unsimplified expression through to some conclusion, I want to break it down. Let's, let's leave all the algebraic manipulation, teach that separately, and let's focus on that final point. Given an algebraic expression, is this always positive, always negative, or, or either? And then use the approach of, instead of me teaching it, present it to the kids. What do you think first on your own? share your thoughts with the person next to you, and then I reveal the answer and you reflect on it. And then I show you another thing where one thing's changed. What do you think? Share your thoughts, reflect, and so on and so forth. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. It's, um, so if you're interested in any of those, they're all on the website, variationtheory.com. Download them, there's pedagogical notes, and, and, and we'll, yeah, hopefully you find it useful. Right, so then we went to the same first session. Now give me a bit about, because you, you know this guy, right? Yeah, uh, Tom Carson uh, took the first session. Uh, he's head of maths at uh, St Paul's High School, and uh, he's, he's very enthusiastic. I, yes. I, sort of, I, I termed him the uh, sort of thinking man's mathematician. You can find him on Twitter at Off Maths, um, and his session was uh, titled "Provocative Statements About Mathematics Education," and it was actually interesting because he talked uh, about 
where the idea for the session had come from. He had originally planned to do a talk at uh, the Scottish Maths Council conference way back at the start of the year, and he was um, he was he was going to do a talk on on lesson starters, and and sort of he came to this conclusion that every lesson should have a starter, but then he started to question whether that was actually true, or uh, a few other people. Um, made suggestions that perhaps no, you don't need a lesson starter. So he he came across this sort of idea of the, the discussions that are going around in maths education, um, and where do you sit on the fence, and where should you sit on the fence? Now, what's quite interesting about Tom's session before we go into the actual yeah. statements was that he's in some senses he's playing on uh, some of the polarizing views that seem to. Uh, sort of have appeared and and, and be uh, enduring in the mathematics discussions, and I, I, I try and encourage people to say, you know, you don't have to choose a side. Uh, we don't need a dichotomy, and sometimes they can be damaging dichotomies. Uh, everything is a balance. Mm. So uh, Tom was being deliberately provocative <laughs> by trying to encourage us to take a side, but it it promoted some really interesting discussion. It, it was a great workshop. And um, you know, well done to, to Tom for, for actually coming up with it. Absolutely, it was, it was fascinating, and it was again, it's it's quite pertinent to me at this time of recording because Twitter's an interesting one, isn't it? And I know you're 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 obviously a, bit, a big Twitter user like myself, and it's it can be the best of places, but the worst of places as well, can't it? Because it it, it does lead to this polarization. It does seem because, and I think the nuance is lost because you've only got 280 characters and people latch onto one thing and before you know it, the thread has spiraled out of control. People are saying all kinds of stuff and, it, and it's hard to kind of, to pull it back. But at the same time, I mean, the obvious dichotomy that's going on at the moment is between a kind of explicit instruction or direct instruction versus these inquiry-based things. And, and that's something I I'm, I'm found myself right in the heart of um, over this weekend. But I think there's, there's a danger as well of saying there's a middle ground because I think, or there's a balance. Because whilst that's certainly true, for me, in some of these arguments, there's a, there's a specific nature to that balance. There's an order to it. And so in terms of the inquiry, and I know a lot of people don't agree with me on this, that style of teaching, that style of learning, for me comes at the end of the phase of learning when students have got a certain amount of foundational knowledge to really then be able to become those independent learners, those creative problem solvers. For me, in the past, I've used it too early, and that's when misconceptions, incomplete knowledge, kids have been lost in the process, and so on and so forth. So whilst there are these dichotomies and the kind of obvious solution is the middle ground i think sometimes there's 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 a bit more nuance to it does that make does that make sense no it makes perfect sense um it's it's easy to oversimplify that i suppose um one one thing that i was thinking and it probably leads into tom's first provocative Mm. statement uh, he he had said that that maths is about creativity not rule following (laughs) which um which is certainly a provocative statement and you can see that uh, a sort of teacher-led approach would, would, would sort of lead to that rule following yes. first and then maybe creativity comes later when you've got some knowledge to actually make sense of what's going on around you. But what I was thinking about was, was really young really young people, really mm-hmm. young pupils, you know, playgroup, uh, kindergarten, primary age, where play is a big part of, yes. of what they experience. And actually through play, I think young people can start to make sense of the world. Um, but that would be an inquiry approach in yes. a sense just putting blocks together, building towers of things and just seeing what happens, seeing what it looks like when you have three blocks all placed together. So there's, there's, there's a part of me that thinks that creativity should still be there and that we want to make sure that we don't stamp out too much creativity yes. by uh, just sort of enforcing rules and structure. I, mean, I think that there's, there's some knowledge around uh, early kind of numerosity where young children are actually quite good at getting an idea of quantity and even getting an idea of, of simple addition and maybe even subtraction before they reach yeah. school. And what they'll tend to do is, if they meet something like t- uh, 10 take away 7, then they'll realise that actually the most efficient strategy for me, instead of counting backwards from 10 7 times, is to find the difference between mm. 7 and, and 10 instead and, and, and maybe add on to, to 7 to get to 10. But then these these pupils can get to school and then be told, well, no, you're not allowed to, to choose methods and be creative like that. You have to follow this structure. And I, I sometimes worry that maybe we stamp a bit of the creativity out of them at that very early stage. But then that's not to say that 
uh, we, we can't just throw them a quadratic equation and say solve this without any understanding of what that quadratic equation yeah. means and represents and, and how to tackle it. It's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting because I, I, I agree with all that and it's it's then where, where do you draw the line? When does yeah? When does it become the point where the rules come into play? Because again, just to re reiterate that this statement, it was uh, maths is about creativity, not rule following, and that was uh, made on Twitter by Joe Bowler. And that we were talking about, kind of these dichotomies. It all kicked off with this, didn't it? Like if people if people want to look up that um, that, that Twitter thread, it was unbelievable because Joe made that statement, and then Mark McCourt, the organizer of this, he was chipping in saying like rules are the key to mathematics, and then people were literally taking one side or the other. And I tweeted this statement out today, and you want to read some of the replies there. Like it is nobody's. A few people are in the middle, saying obviously you need both, but there are real kind of extremes either side. It's, yeah, it is fascinating. And me, um, again, I think, and it's I sound like a broken record, for kids to be creative, they need something to base that creativity on. Um, it's, you've got to, this is a cliche, but I'm just going to say it, you've almost got to know the rules to know how to break the rules, if, if that makes sense. But uh, again, yeah, it, I, there's definite value in, we, definitely if, if it was just all teacher-led instruction the whole time and kids didn't get that opportunity to inquire, to investigate, it will be a very stale existence. But for me, those opportunities, kids get most out of them when they're towards the end of the, the process. Mm -hmm. Anything else to add on that particular statement? Well, um, maybe just a couple of things yeah, on that, in that uh, if, we, if, we are, if we are teaching rules, then what's very important is that we're teaching rules that will always work. That's a very good point. And we're not teaching a simplified version of something because it suits the, the material we're covering just mm. now, but oh, that'll break further down the line. So we need to make sure that those rules are robust and we'll, we'll go all the way through it. Then just a little anecdote about a, a pupil I taught last year. and I quite often survey my classes just really out of my own interest to see what they're thinking about the, the experience and about learning. And I, I did say to them, why do you think we learn mathematics? Okay, why do you think we study mathematics? And some of them will say, to get a good job, yeah. to be an accountant. And others will say, you know, so we can we can manage our finances, which is which is perfectly valid. But but one pupil um, came back to me and she said, "Well, I think we, we study mathematics to play with it," hey. which I thought was a beautiful response. And then I suppose that just um, leads back to the creativity thing and just playing around with maths and seeing just for your own enjoyment where you can go with it and what you can do with it. That's lovely. Uh, really nice story. I like that. Um, statement two. Well, there was four of these statements, so we might as well just uh, touch upon each. This was a good one, right? Maths anxiety will be reduced by explicit teaching. And this was a statement made by a, a former podcast guest. He's been on twice, actually, uh, Greg Ashman. Now, whenever we were discussing this, because I was lucky enough to, to be sat near you, you were... You were talking about how you'd seen Joe Bowler. She's been over in Scotland. You had some crazy statistic that Joe shared. What, what was that one, Stuart? Yeah, Joe uh, came to, to Scotland recently, and um, she was saying that she'd surveyed Scottish pupils. Uh, I think it was eleven thousand pupils had responded, and that uh, fifty-eight percent of Scottish pupils agreed that maths made them nervous. That's frightening, isn't it? Which, which I, I think is a real shame that we're, that we're in that situation. Uh, I think it's a real pity that just asking them to do even simple numeracy work um, puts them under pressure because we know that we don't respond at our best when mm. we're feeling stressed and when we're feeling anxious. So I think this is a really uh, interesting statement if maths anxiety can be reduced by explicit teaching or not. Because Joe's point there, and I wasn't at the top, but I assume it would be the reason for this maths anxiety is because of the, the time test kids are under, the pressure that these kids are under and so on. Whereas if they are instead taught by kind of problem-based learning, given these interesting problems to, to work on in groups and all this kind of stuff, that would reduce the maths anxiety. But again, and I don't know if it's the true future, it, it wouldn't be that simple for me. Like um, maths anxiety for a start is an incredibly, it's an incredibly serious uh, Serious thing. It is an it is an actual thing. For years, I didn't think it was. It affects students of all abilities. Um, it doesn't seem to be. It's not just the weaker mathematicians who have it. Um, I've certainly taught top set students who were were, were scared of maths, who couldn't couldn't function sometimes, and it, it it's, it's debilitating. It really really is. But I don't think that if you just I don't think it's the case that if you don't teach them explicitly, all of a sudden this this anxiety disappears because. And again, I'll, I'll hand over to you in a sec. But for me, a lot of the anxiety comes from a lack of confidence, a lack of feeling of success. And if you can teach kids well, 
and for me a lot of that would involve explicit teaching, then their fear of mathematics starts to disappear because they've tasted success, they, they're equipped with the, the skills and the knowledge to be able to solve the problems that in the past were making them absolutely terrified. So, of course, I'm not saying explicit teaching definitely gets rid of maths anxiety. It's got to be good teaching. Um, but yeah, for me, it's a, it's a key component of it. But, but what, what do you think? What's your take on it? I would, I would agree with you on that one. I think that uh, we, we, we probably need a definition of explicit mm. teaching. Um, and if we can replace explicit teaching in that statement with just really good teaching, yeah. then yes, of course, really good teaching is going to reduce maths anxiety. And what we're aiming to do is build confidence, like you were saying, and that confidence is built through success. So that means making sure that the learners are given work that's going to challenge them, so that they're still interested, but work that's challenging that they can still accomplish, that mm. they can still have success with. And it's, it's like trying to find that, that holy grail, that perfect point, uh, that sweet spot yes. of learning so that they can be challenged, but they can still have some success and they can still feel better. Um, it's a huge thing for me in my classes is, is a sense of belonging um, and a sense of motivation, a sense of a shared journey that we're on. And this idea that it's all right to be wrong. Yes. In fact, it's great to be wrong because that gives us a chance to look at different ideas and then come up with a solution to this. So it takes time. Uh, and it takes a real investment in um, training, for want of a better word, or conditioning even uh, classes into to knowing that you don't need to have the right answer first time and that you're not going to get everything right when you first encounter it. It's actually very simple when you think about it, that if, if you knew everything that you were going to be asked in school, then why would you come to school? Mm, you're, su point. you're supposed to come in and, and meet things that are unfamiliar yes. and, and stretch yourself and struggle. And it's just how the pupils respond. Going back to what you said about top sets, actually, that is very interesting. I think that could be the worst place to be. And yeah. uh, I often see these, these pupils who, again, for want of a better phrase, the bottom of the top set. Yes. These kind yes. of three or four sometimes pupils who do not answer questions, who sit there thinking, oh, no. He's going to ask me, I've got all these super clever people around about me and I'm going to look silly. That's harming their learning because they're in that state of heightened anxiety. And I also often say to pupils, I think you would be better in this second set. You'll be more comfortable and I think you'll make more progress. And they don't like it because there's a stigma. Top set is the place to be. Second set, oh no, that's a sign of failure. And we need to challenge those beliefs. Any pupil that has moved into a second set, despite the protestations of, oh no, this isn't going to be good for my self-esteem and whatnot, have then gone on to flourish. And they tend to do better uh, than they might have if they'd stayed in that top set. That's interesting. Now, of course, we can open the black hole of mixed attainment versus setting, but we'll, 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 steer, we'll steer clear of that. That's a you? great conversation, actually. <laughs> yeah, we um, could have that another time. We certainly could. Let me just ask you one more thing. Um, about Joe, when you went to watch it, what, what did you take away from, from the session? Um, was, was there anything that you thought, anything that you particularly either really disagreed with or, or really agreed with? But what was it like? Well, I'm fascinated by Joe's sort of summer camps that she does so uh, she she reveals it's pretty transparent it seems to be that she takes struggling kids from schools out of schools and does a summer camp with them where they work together um in a, in a kind of teacher-led but also quite open and collaborative way on on interesting problems mm. the sort of problems that you can get from the from our youtube website and they work together on those problems they uh, spend a lot of time explaining their thinking to one another they conjecture and they then um, are challenged on their conjectures so they're, they're forced to sort of give a rationale and a justification for what they're thinking and I feel it gets them talking about maths and it also gets them exploring maths in a way that they probably never had before. What I think Joe is, is, is trying to get away from is pupils seeing maths as a, as a series of procedures that just need to be memorised as you go all the way through. And the sad reality is that actually you can be quite successful in most exam systems by doing just that. Yes. Just memorise the procedures, recognise them in the exam, regurgitate it, and there you go, you can progress on to the next course. But I think we know that learning mathematics deeply is about, is about much more than that. So what Joe seems to be doing repeatedly with these summer camps is taking pupils, they do some sort of standardised statewide uh, algebra test or something before they go in, and then they um, do a very, very similar test at the end. She hasn't taught them any more algebra. They've just had this creative maths experience, but they seem to be doing better at the end. 
So she's sort of suggesting that we're just sort of uncovering maths a little bit for them, just opening up the possibility to them that, yes, you can be successful, but uh, it's, it's, it's maybe quite a departure from what they've been mm. used to and in classes like, up to then. Having listened to it, would you, like, were you sold on it? Would you be thinking this is the way forward? Could you bring that into, into your lessons, into school? Or? It's, it's probably not something I would be buying into wholeheartedly, but I think there are pieces uh, from what Joe talks about that are definitely applicable. Mindset is a huge thing. This, this growth mindset that gets another phrase that gets sort of battered mm. these days in the, in the media. At the end of the day, intelligence is not fixed. And I think that's important. That's an important message that we get out to pupils. This idea of having an IQ. Well, your IQ can change. Yeah. And all we need to do is, is amass more knowledge to allow our IQ to grow. And I tell pupils that and they, they don't believe it. They just think that they're smart. Yeah. Or that there's the clever person sitting over there. But that actually, through... Um, through building knowledge and through retaining knowledge, then actually everybody can um, can improve their intelligence. I think that we talked um, earlier about uh, Anders Ericsson's book, yes. uh, Peak, mm. and there's, there's a line in there, and I might not get the quote right here, but he basically talks about that as well. Intelligence is not fixed. He says, uh, learning isn't a way of fulfilling your potential. Learning is a way of creating your potential, which I think is, uh, is a beautiful phrase. Now, I subscribe to that. And I try and get that message across to, to my classes already. And I think that ties in with, with Joe's message around yes. mindset. So that's certainly something that um, I think we can put into our classroom. That's interesting. And I guess the proponents of explicit instruction would agree wholeheartedly with that, but would argue that the best way to get it isn't through these, or certainly not at the start, through these kind of creative problem-solving activities, but through this atomized approach to breaking down topics, teaching it well, retrieval practice, all those kind of things. So I think both camps have the same kind of ultimate aim and, and the same kind of ultimate beliefs about mindset. I, I, I do believe that, but it's just a completely different view of how to get there, isn't it? But it's fascinating. Right. Well, I, again, you can see what an interesting session this was because it was just provoking so much, so much kind of thought. Statement three was a good one. as well. <laughs> it was all kicking off with this one. The power to learn rests with the learner Teacher, teaching has a subordinate role. Now, this was really, really interesting. Now, this was from the ATM Guiding Principles, which I found very, very, very interesting. Because I'm reading this thinking, who the hell is saying this? Like, what? Like, the first step part is obvious. The power to learn rests with the learner. Yeah. Now, Chris Bolton, who was in the session, he was using all the big words to describe this. What, what, did, he, what, what did he say? A truism or something like that? Yeah, he, said? he said the first part of the statement, the first clause is a, is a truism. first clause is a truism. Yeah, that's right. he's straight in there. Uh, and he said, this, so it's irrelevant, doesn't need to be there. And then the second clause is, is, is vague and meaningless. And, yeah. you know, teaching is subordinate to what? Teaching plays a subordinate role to what? So Chris took that uh, statement apart. <laughs> when we were sitting chatting about it, actually, I think we both agreed uh, very, very quickly that the power to learn rests with the learner. Yes. But that, that second part of the statement, the second clause there, teaching as a subordinate role, immediately I felt sort of offended by yeah, that. Yeah, correct. Um, I, I, I certainly feel that the learner and the teacher both have a role to play. We both bring something to the party. And uh, yes, without effort and attention from the learner, they're going to struggle. But without great teaching from the teacher, then learning won't take place either. So I think both things have to sit hand in hand. I, I don't see why teaching should be pushed into some secondary position or, or great teaching should to take a subordinate role. Yeah, it was, yeah. Very, very, yeah, very, I have nothing more to add there, you've, you've, you've summed it up perfectly, but yeah, very, very interesting that one. And the final one, again, another classic, learning is a change in long-term memory, and this for me is it's from Cognitive Load Theory, I think it's Paul Kirshner um, in, in the paper with uh, Swallow and colleagues that, that coined this phrase, and for me, like, I, I'm all over this, and I, I almost think that that is a fact now, but I remember on Twitter not so long ago, um, I think Dylan William referred to it in, in, in passing, and then it, people were all over it, saying, what the hell does that mean? What is long-term memory? How are you measuring this? And then looking to add extra things, look, different definitions of learning and so on. And well, what's your take on it? Do you, is it? Is it a useful definition? Uh, well, when I saw that statement that learning is a change in long-term memory, I thought, yeah, what's, 
what's there to, to debate here? Mm, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. fine. That's what I, yeah. I, I'd sign up to that as well. But I suppose what we can do is, is be more specific about what we mean there. And my understanding of, of learning is not just an accumulation of knowledge, but us developing deeper and more interconnected knowledge structures in our long-term memory. So organising that knowledge mm. to make it more meaningful. Mm. So for me, that is the change in long-term memory. That's connecting up previously unrelated bits of knowledge and, and developing these, these richer schema yes. that, uh, that, that the cognitive psychologists talk about. Yeah, that's important because it's not just gaining more knowledge, it's, it's connecting and organising that knowledge. I think that's, yeah, that's a really important point. But I'll tell you what, it was a great tip-off from you to come to this session. I, I really, really enjoyed that. I thought, I thought it was, uh, yeah, Tom was absolutely super. Tom did a great job. He was excellent. He was very, very good. And then we, we went our separate ways for, for the second session. So I'll, I'll let you go first. You went to see uh, Naveen, didn't you? Is that yes, Naveen, uh, Naveen Rizvi. And uh, I've just written in my notes here in a big, uh, huge bubble, wow, exclamation mark, <laughs> that was fast. Naveen covered so much. It was incredible. I've got about 15 jotter pages here <laughs> of notes, so I obviously can't get through any of it. But her session was titled The Pareto Principle of Lesson Planning. And um, essentially the, the, the Pareto Principle is this 80-20 rule. And Naveen sort of defined it very nicely for us by saying that some inputs are more impactful than others. Oh, that's nice. So some inputs are more impactful than others. And she said the majority of the positive results that we get come from the minority of the inputs that we put in. That's interesting. This 80-20 rule. But then she went on to say quite quickly that it doesn't have to be 80-20, that it could be 70-30. And she even said it doesn't even have to add up to 100. <laughs> so I'll start to get a bit confusing there. <laughs> what she suggested was we want to aim to try and find and focus on the 20% of the inputs that are giving us our maximum uh, outputs. So very, very interesting. I've come across this uh, idea of atomizing before, but I hadn't ever seen it in action quite like uh, like Naveen demonstrated. So this idea of atomizing is, is basically breaking down a, a concept into uh, its smallest possible subtasks and constituent parts. And uh, Naveen used the example of perimeter uh, throughout her workshop. Because it's an interesting choice, right? I mean, I wasn't in the workshop. I saw a few photos. You say perimeter, and for me, that's that's a really small thing. That that's small enough to begin with, right? Like perimeter, maybe cover that in a lesson. Almost kind of assume kids can can already do it actually by the time we get them from primary school. But to hear that she broke it down in, in so many different ways was was fascinating. What, what what kind of things did she do with it? Well, she broke it down into twelve sub, <laughs> sub tasks, and. What, what, as, as our presentation evolved, I started to sort of really realise what was going on here. Um, you have the concept of perimeter, and, and that's essential. We need to have some sort of understanding of what we mean by perimeter. But then when Naveen moved on to examples for, for learners to do and to try, she was almost in, intelligently varying them. Right. And what she was doing was increasing the, the difficulty, by not by bringing in other concepts, but by bringing in things like uh, decimals or fractions and skills that she knows the pupils have, have already uh, developed or have already mastered uh, that they can then bring to this, this perimeter discussion. So one lovely example, she was talking about L-shape, um, compound shapes, which I'm sure everybody throws an L-shape on the board yeah. at some point. And she was saying, find the perimeter where all the sides are whole numbers and then find the perimeter where one side's a whole number. One of the sides has got a decimal with one decimal place and another side has two decimal places so you've got this sort of addition mm. of, of different numbers in that sense dealing with the different decimal places then of course she's rotating the shapes which is so important changing the configuration of them yes then she starts talking about missing sides uh, can you find the missing side here before you can work out the perimeter yes talking about the verticals talking about horizontals rotating them again so suddenly this perimeter has become much more of a sort of deeper journey around all the different ways that we can look at tackling perimeter. Uh, she went on even further to talk about um, using polygons. Uh, she would give the perimeter and say, here's a regular hexagon with perimeter, what's the side length? Or here are the side lengths, what's the perimeter? And uh, another example that she had, I think she said that the polygons had the same side length as they had number of sides. What's the perimeter? So a hexagon would have a side length of six, yes. six sides, there's your square numbers coming in, oh, nice. which is quite nice. 
Um, so in that way, she's she's almost using perimeter as a vehicle to sort of showcase uh, a whole load of of previously learned skills as well, just bringing that all together. See, the, what what's lovely about that is. Um it goes back to something you've said before. So, firstly, it's it's and we'll, we'll get into this when we talk about your session. It's it's spacing, it's retrieval, it's it's not teaching topics in nice tidy blocks. It's bringing in all all prior information, but also as you were referring to um, earlier, Stuart, about this 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 schema in long term memory. It's it's not teaching topics in isolation. It's showing that decimals, fractions, are um, properties of polygons are all connected together and linked together via perimeter and then via area when she goes on to do that and then via angles when she goes. so kids aren't seeing oh this week we are learning this and next week we are learning something else it, it's just math is all brought together and like I, I don't know about you I'm, I'm going to sound rubbish when I say this but I was slow onto this kind of atomization of, of topics especially something you can see it for something like simultaneous equations where it's quite obvious that there's different stages that need to be gone through to solve a pair of simultaneous equations but something like perimeter I struggled I would struggle even now to break it down into those substeps but there seems to be a big advantage of doing so right I would, I would completely agree, and I would say that I was probably in the, the same boat as you to an extent earlier in my teaching career. I would generally show enough examples and enough variation in the examples so that pupils could do all the questions in the textbook. Yes. So, oh, there's a tricky one in the textbook, I'll make sure I do an example ahead of that. But I didn't ever sit down and say, how many different ways can we come at this? Where can we sort of bring in some prior learning? Where can we maybe throw up a misconception? So, this idea of really carefully choosing your examples and carefully choosing the, the practice that the, the students do I think is very powerful and it's something that I've started to try and adopt more and more of. What what it's meant for me is that I find I'm doing more and more examples. Yes. Perhaps more than I would have done before but I think I think you, you use this sort of example problem pair uh, structure and, and that works quite well because it's not just a boring lecture of here's a dozen examples from the teacher well you guys can all have a sleep. <laughs> it's sort of, I'll do one, you watch, let's talk, you do one, let's have a chat about these two. So more interactive, and we'll maybe come back to it later, but it, it, it lends itself to the sort of pace that I like to maintain in a lesson. So atomising a topic down is your way in to getting a really good uh, spread or, uh, or array of, of examples that are going to allow pupils to see the funny cases, see the unusual cases. Sometimes wonder whether... We subconsciously hold back the sort of sneaky question. Well, oh, that'll be a good one for the test. That'll catch them all out. Yeah. We throw it into the test and they all get it wrong and we go, yeah. ah, but what good has that done for the learning? Yes. For me, it's much better to expose all that stuff in the class. Well, it's interesting you say that. I think we either do exactly what you've said there or we hold it back as an extension work for someone, the one or two kids who finish. And then if it ever does crop up, as you say later on, the majority of kids have never seen it, so it's a nightmare. Or, and Danny Quinn put me onto this, we sometimes set those most interesting questions for homework. So that'll be part of a homework activity. And it's those kind of questions that the kids need the most teacher support with. Like the routine questions, they're probably gonna be all right, so you can practice them for homework. The interesting questions, they're the ones that you do as a class, they're the ones that you say, right, think about this on your own, now share it, now talk with the person next to you, now let's bring it together. Whereas a poor kid sat on their own in the bedroom at home with this like fascinating problem, you look at it, I don't have a clue, I have no one, no one to ask, no one to speak to. So either leave it out or get anxious and so on and so forth. And then all the benefit from that problem is, is gone. So yeah, those interesting questions, two things. One, we need, to, we need to bring them into play and whether you call them boundary examples or whatever, the kids, all kids need exposing to them. And for me, they need exposing to them in a classroom supportive environment. So I, I don't know if you agree with that. No, I do. I do agree with that very much. And that's why or certainly that's one of the reasons why I've gone to a flipped classroom model for my National 5 and for my higher classes because what's happening there is that at home, in advance of the lessons, they're watching me uh, through video, through online, demonstrate how to do most of the mm, routine yes, elements yes. and most of the kind of entry-level questions and then they come into class and provided they've watched the videos and they soon learn that if they don't watch the videos they're in a bit of bother because they can't do anything but provided they've done that, they come into class and we can start straight on 
to the more interesting problems. And it's exactly as you say, Craig, that I am there as the expert in the room to guide them through these difficult problems. I think that it's um, it's it's almost it's almost unfair to say, okay, guys, I've lectured to you for most of this lesson. Uh, try the first three questions just now, and then I want you to finish the exercise yes. for homework. Because in most textbooks I've come across, the most interesting, most challenging questions are toward the end, and these poor guys are going home and they're being stuck and they're either copying from someone else, they're missing out. They might be getting assistance from somebody if there's somebody around that can help them, but is it really the same guidance that yeah. their math teacher would give them? So for me, that's that's one of the reasons why actually flipping the class um, can be quite powerful. But flip classrooms are discussion, I think, for another it, time. It is, and I, if anyone's interested here, I, I want to interview John Corbett um, from Corbett Maths. He's a big, big advocate of the flip classroom, so, so check that one out. Um, yeah, it sounded a fascinating session with, with Naveen. Have you, any other points from it? Just, just one more, more thing, I suppose. Uh, this has been a common theme throughout the day, really, and Naveen was, was, was highlighting it as well. She was, she was talking about the quality of the questions that you choose. You have to be very careful in the questions you choose, and she's clearly given a perimeter, in this case, uh, a lot of thought, and that expectations should be high, uh, which mm. was the message she was trying to get across. Um, she actually went on to... Um, define what she calls sexy maths. <laughs> I've heard her say this before. <laughs> which um, certainly caused everyone in the uh, in the workshop to sit up and take interest. But uh, what she was meaning there was she was saying, take a topic that you're working on and, and make it more challenging by bringing in knowledge that they, that they already have. So it's just sort of building complexity into these questions. And uh, she says that our pupils will actually say, wow, miss, that was a, that was a sexy question there. <laughs> <laughs> she's good. She's great. Really. When, I, when I first heard her talk, she uh, described Siegfried Gengelman, who bear in mind is ninety six years old, as a babe. So yeah, she's she's got a, got her own way of uh, explaining things to me. But she's superb, and she'll be a future guest on on the podcast, and I'm sure it'll be fascinating. Um, so just very quickly, the, the session I went to on my own was Mark McCourt's, and it was on paper folding. And and you'd kind of tipped me off again about this. You said you'd seen, um, you'd been in a similar session run by run by Mark, and and previously, and thought I'd enjoy it, and I certainly did. But I tell you what, I was out of my comfort zone because I am crap at anything like that, anything spatial or anything like that. I am absolutely woeful. But um, and I struggled. I was like, and, and Mark. I mean, this isn't good teaching. He kept highlighting that fact throughout. So my anxiety levels were, were, were going through the roof. But I was having to fold things and I couldn't follow the diagram through and the lady next to me kind of was, was helping me. I needed like learning support assistant with me, but I, I managed to bundle my way through. But again, it's quite useful, I think, um, putting yourself in a position like that sometimes just so you can be aware what some of the kids what some of the kids feel like but it was a fascinating session. Um, we, had, we were folding um, an A4 piece of paper. We made a shape that looked like a kite but was it a kite and then we talked about how we might know it was a kite without measuring and so on and we were getting to the properties then we did a similar thing with an isosceles triangle and the equilateral triangle but then it was all about the creativity what can we do with these and like we we're kind of socially awkward maths teachers at first not knowing what to do and then Mark said you have to try and put them together and we talked about tessellations and angles and so on anyway it was fascinating and um, if anyone's interested in that I shared a load of pictures and basically I was so proud of any shape I made so I took a picture of it on my Twitter feed and you can see some of the uh, some of the shapes that were put together but it was a, it was a fascinating session and um, right two more things we want to talk about two more we went to the next one was wow, I don't know I don't know where to start with this. So this, this is Chris Bolton. Now, um, Chris Bolton, friend of the show, um, he's been on here, uh, well, two epic um, kind of performances on here, and he, he, he pops up, I've also, he's been a co-host for conference takeaways uh, when I was at Festival of Learning. And he sent me a message saying, um, you've, got, you've got to come to my session, because um, it's gonna change your life. Because the title of the session, and I'm gonna get this wrong, is something like, is it solving linear equations, 100% success guaranteed, or something like that, right? So some title, and it was interesting because I'd mentioned solving linear equations in my opening uh, in my opening uh, keynote. So I was fascinated about this, and the first time I interviewed Chris on my podcast, and that was when he described his way of uh, approaching solving linear equations, and he broke that down, I think, into thirteen um, sub 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 steps, like we were talking about before, and that was linear. Uh, that was solving simultaneous equations. Um, but we had a little argument or a disagreement about linear about solving linear equations because Chris is always of the view that often you can teach how to do something before you sh show students why it works, and I agree with that. 
but not for linear equations. I think it's very important that students see exactly why something works in terms of the balancing, doing the same thing to both sides, so that they understand so it doesn't become a trick like change side, change side and all this kind of thing. And Chris went away and thought about that for a while and he still thinks you can teach equations how to do them first and kind of come back to the why later. And he's now got this approach, this 100% guaranteed approach. Now, Stuart, we, we didn't get to um, one-step equations because how many steps were there before a one-step? Like 11 before we even got to solving a one-step equation. Is that yeah, right? I think, I think I made the last count of the, the steps. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was utterly fascinating. Um, I don't know, Chris has maybe stayed up too many nights sort of breaking this down into its, its granular parts. It's almost beyond atomization. Um, <laughs> split the atom, wasn't it? Split the atom. <laughs> It was fascinating, right? Because you always come, like, you can't not watch Chris and, and come, without coming away with just head, head absolutely spinning. Because for a start, I thought we made a really interesting point early on about the equal sign. And I thought this was fascinating. The fact that we kind of lazily use the equal sign um, in mathematics. So we'll have an equation with an equal, like 2x plus 1 equals 13, and that means the student should solve that equation. But then we'll also say something like 3 brackets x plus 1 equals, and that means the kid should expand the brackets. So it's no wonder that kids start to get confused by, well, what does this equal sign mean? Does it mean I have to go ahead and find a solution, or do I have to just transform it in some particular way? And we'll do it for equivalent fractions, like four over six equals two thirds. And so, but so he was actually doing it, it wasn't just one, was it? There was a whole sequence on this equal sign. Like, when is an equal sign used? Are these things equal? Are they not equal? What sign should go here? It was it was incredible, wasn't it? And even before he in introduced the symbol, he was uh, he was talking about getting the learners to actually just write down in words. Yes, this, this oh, is equal nice. to this, or this is not equal to this. I think the, the, the reasoning behind that was that pupils very quickly get bored of writing down is equal to, is not equal to. So here, this is why we have a symbol. This is why we use it. And this is what the equal sign looks like. What I quite liked was that at the same time, you can introduce the, the not equal to yes, symbol exactly. at the same time, which, which was good. They come in. Although whenever I've introduced not equals to symbol, Classes just get it straight away. Mm. It's fine. And they're like, oh, this is good. Yes. I've now got another symbol that I can use. Although not many of them really ever get an yes. opportunity to use it. And the the identity one was interesting for me, wasn't it? Because I've seen this on I've seen Gemma Sherwood talk about this on Twitter. Now I don't know about you, um, Stuart, but I um I the first time many kids see the identity symbol for me is either trig identities or something quite quite further up the school. But the identity symbol is such an important one, certainly in terms of equations, but also like I was talking before about expanding brackets or something. Though That is an identity. Three brackets x plus one is always equal to three lots of x plus three. It's not right to put the equal sign there. So again, if you leave the identity symbol to later on, it becomes weird. But if you hit kids with it early, with, with simple examples broke down in a logical sequence, they just start to understand it. So I, I thought that was an, I thought that was interesting. I, so. I, I do. I, I did also agree with that. I think that it's very important to teach things properly first time. So if there's a symbol that we should be using in this situation, then we should be explaining to them why we use it in this situation and trying to encourage them to do it. But interestingly, um, on the uh, identity, it appeared in um, in a Scottish um, SQA compulsory uh, assessment couple of years ago, maybe a few years after that, and it just caused an absolute rammy, a nightmare, <laughs> because what was this doing in here? This is not something that we tend to use that much north of the border, and uh, it just appeared in here, so I think a lot of pupils were probably told, just treat it like an equal sign. Yeah, of course, of course. And there's an opportunity there that's maybe Absolutely. lost, but then, I don't know. I would like to see more use yes. uh, of those three bars. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm team three bars. Can't go wrong. Why have two bars and you can have three? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, the other thing I liked about this, well, I mean, I liked the whole thing, because as I say, it was just fascinating, was the, um, the, the concept of a breaking and repairing equations, I think, is such a powerful one. And I've seen Chris in action with, 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 with a similar kind of process where he will say, he'll set up an e equation, and this will be something along the lines of, um, it, I think he had something like, uh, it may be something like 5 plus 2, 
um, is is equal to ten minus three or something like that. And then he'll say, um, and he'll say, this does not break the equation. And then he'll add three to both sides. And then he'll say, this does not break the equation. And he'll take two thousand and fifty-seven off both sides. And then he'll say, this does break the equation. And then he'll ha he'll add fourteen to one of the sides. And it's just that it's 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 not telling kids what it means to break or not break an equation, but it's giving them the perfect opportunity to get it for themselves. Because to explain it is abstract, but to see it, it's just there, it makes sense. And I just, I thought, did you like that bit as well? Yeah, I did, I absolutely agree with that. I think uh, it's really important to, to get this idea of, of, of equality and that if you're going to carry out some sort of operation on one side of the equation, then it will break it unless you, you balance that out with the same operation on the other side. I'm, I'm a big fan of a balanced equation yes. method. That's, that's the way I will go. I will draw scales. If possible, we will get some sort of balance into the room and we'll work on that. It gets harder as you go further down the line. Yes. That's, the, that's the challenge. But um, I would like to try and think that I will incorporate this idea of breaking equations just to show this is where they stop being yes. true. And uh, these are the things you, you're allowed to do with an equation to, 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 to keep it intact, and this will break it. Absolutely. And it's the, again, it's the, it's, the, it's the point of the examples and the non-examples, so not just always showing kids nice, tidy equations, showing them things that aren't equations. And I like the concept of repairing as well. So once you've broken it, what do you do to repair this equation? And Chris ran out of time at that stage, but it was, I'm assuming this repair process then goes on to how you can then solve the equation. Because Chris was saying, if you have 5x, what do I need to do to get it to 1x? Well, I divide it by 5, but now I've broken that equation. So once kids, by that stage, kids have got into the, the habit of breaking and repairing, they understand that. So it's now then just a, a very simple step to go, okay, well, you've broken it by dividing that side by 5, so I'm going to divide the other side by 5 to rebalance it. So I could see exactly where it's going. We just needed about another seven hours, didn't we, to, to get through it? Another day would have done it. <laughs> what, was, what was quite interesting was, and you've, you've, you've summed it up pretty much perfectly, that was, that was what he was saying. Chris was talking about um, you want to try and decide, so there's a decision there, how am I going to reduce this equation from 5x equals 17, to x equals something. So how are we going to go from 5x to x? So he's bringing in this divide by 5 uh, on one side of the equation, but oh no, we've broken it. Yeah. So how do we repair it? Well, we do the same thing onto the other side. And then he was saying, from there, you can simplify. Yes. So 5x over 5, simplifying down to that x that we were aiming for, uh, equal to 17 over 5. And then he was saying that this whole process that we've done, which is sort of reduce, break, repair, simplify, we call that whole process solving. Yeah, and it, and the name of it comes at the end, right? I thought that that, yeah. that was nice as well. There's, you teach them how to do it, and at the end it's like, oh, what you've actually done now, you've solved an equation. Mm -hmm. That was mm -hmm. nice. Because you'll hear people saying they're trying to solve expressions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's where you can see that this might be, be helpful in getting that terminology lined up. What I did think was interesting was he, he did show a very quick example of a, a kind of two-step one. I think he had something like, 5x plus 3 equals whatever and he, he said you know first we're going to say decide what we need to do to reduce it to 5x and then we'll break repair simplify yes. and then we'll have our 5x equals and then we'll decide what we need to do to reduce it to x break repair simplify this all solving but the thing that I would you know want to, to ask him about is well why what's what's to stop them saying I want to reduce it at the beginning from 5x plus 3 to x plus three. Mm. How do they know to go to five x? And you know what? It's interesting this because I, I'll tell you what I'm obsessed with at the moment is decisions. Right? I think it's the most underrated part of certainly for me as a teacher of kind of maths teaching, and it's one of the keys to learning. If kids make the wrong decision, it doesn't matter how good they are at carrying out procedures after that. They're screwed. So there's a classic example. If you make the wrong decision there that you're going to reduce it to x plus three. Everything else has gone wrong. And it's the same with simultaneous equations or, or adding fractions. If you make the wrong decision early on that these fractions are in a form that can be added, then it doesn't matter. Everything else is going to go wrong early on. And you're right, it's, it's how do we get kids good at those decisions. And I can only assume that that would be done explicitly as well. Mm -hmm. I can only Absolutely. assume he's yeah. given them 5x plus 3 and he's, and he's presenting them with a decision 
is this the right one or not? He's showing them examples and non-examples of that. But yeah, that we need a part two of this. We need, we? A part we need a part two, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> <absolutely>. <laughs> right. So final one uh, was your was your session, and and it, it, it was wonderful, Stuart. Do you want to just give us a, a brief outline about what you were thinking when you were putting it together? And I've just got a, a, a couple of um, specific questions to ask you about it. Well, firstly, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and secondly, I was just glad that people stayed around to <laughs> yes, for the graveyard shift <laughs> here. Um, the session was called uh, Evidence into Practice, which I realise now sounds a bit boring. <laughs> and the workshop description also sounded a bit boring. So essentially, there is loads of good stuff going on in cognitive psychology and uh, neuroscience. And I've just been, been researching and reading and, and thinking, well, how can I actually benefit from this in the classroom? How can my learners benefit from, from me changing things in the classroom uh, to try and build what uh, Peps McRae calls deep and durable learning. Uh, so I think that's what we're aiming for. So I suppose my session it was like a whistle-stop tour of some of the research of some of the big strategies and then also a little bit of a look at um, how I've been applying them in the classroom. And it was that that I liked. Well, I really liked it all, but it was... It Without the application, we're in trouble, aren't we? Because we can we can talk about retrieval, spacing, interleaving. But what I liked is, is that you showed how how you know it, it's in action. A um, couple of things about it that that I, that I realised. I want to just dig a bit deeper in. Um, you showed a beautiful um, image about. Um, kids' expectations of, of how they're going to do in a particular test and then the actual reality and girls versus boys and all that. Can you just talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so my classes do a weekly retrieval practice and we just call it that, not a test, not an assessment, it's just a retrieval practice. That's nice, I like that. And I've talked to them about the retrievers, the dog, and this idea, <laughs> they love this, this idea of, of a retriever in their mind, running away into the depths of long-term memory to go and find something and bring it back to the front, to the That's working part of their memory. So, you know, when we, when we see um, learners in the class struggling with something, I'll say, it's retriever, it's off, it's off and looking. <laughs> is it going to find something? And, and the, the thing is that the, the research is telling us that if you're successful retrieving these things, um, and the harder it is for you to retrieve them, but that if you have success retrieving these things then the the storage strength of that memory in long-term memory is, is is boosted and you remember it better next time so I, i'm buying into that i'm totally biased that i'm just gonna i'm buying into that i want that to be true and um, <laughs> so far it, it seems to be to be panning out what we do is the weekly retrieval practices uh just 10 questions there's no timer uh there's no time limit they're short questions mainly although they actually are increasing in complexity the more we come back to the same topic again a desirable difficulty as we go down the line i don't want to just keep asking them the same question mm -hmm. week in week out we're just ramping it up a little bit yes. as we go and i get the the learners to to self-mark i just give them a, a page of model solutions and i get them to mark either right or wrong but before they get the model solutions once they once they finish the questions there's a little matrix on their on their paper that they can highlight against each question green or red how do you feel about your likelihood of success, basically? Do you think you're going to get this right? And it's a bit of a measure of confidence and it's a chance for them to just, you know, that metacognition um, yes. in action, or just to think hard about, do I really know this? Am I just kidding myself on? And very interestingly, there's feedback from the pupils. They've said it, it would be more beneficial for them to, to highlight as they go. I was getting them to do all the questions and then do the highlighting. Mm. But they said they prefer to highlight as they go, and I think that that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, they've just thought about a question, they've struggled through it, or maybe they've sailed through it, or maybe they think they've sailed yeah, through it, of course. which is really important, and they'll highlight green or red. And what seems to happen when you start with retrieval practice is that they, uh, not all of them, but, but a lot of them are, are wildly inaccurate in terms of predicting what they're going to get right and what they're going to get wrong. I think if they've left it blank, it's safe to assume that they're going to say they've got it wrong, they highlight it red, they get it wrong. But it's really very interesting to see at the early stages how far off the mark some of them can yes. be. Um, but it's also a little bit worrying, in a sense, that they're happily writing things down thinking they're getting it right when they're not. Or they're writing down things thinking that they're going to be wrong, which are actually right. Yes. So really, really very interesting to, to get a little insight into their minds. What I've seen in my experience, and I'm not saying that this is a general uh, case at all, but uh, the girls seem to um, be less confident. Now, it could just be the group that I have, but it does seem that they tend to predict more wrong answers 
and the boys tend to be a bit more uh, gallus for use of a good uh, Scottish <laughs> word there. And they just uh, they just say, oh yeah, I'm going to get most of this right. And, and, and they turn out to be wrong there as well. So I'm hoping that when they get the model solutions, that their confidence, if it was uh, misplaced and they realise, oh goodness, I thought I was going to get this right, but actually it's wrong, that they get that wee bit of cognitive shock that you've been talking about, that hypercorrection, perhaps coming into play. Um, I let them keep the model solutions, they keep the retrievals so they can use them for self-testing and study later on, so they've got that little model. But over time, what's happened is that they've got better at predicting what they know and what they don't know, which is what we must ultimately be aiming for because I'm not always going to be there to hold their hand. They have to become independent learners and this idea of self-regulating learners um, that, that John Hattie talks about um, is very powerful and, and I think this is one thing that we can do to, to give them some structure around becoming uh, more aware of what they know and what they don't know. So although I'd initially started this as just a chance to practice some stuff that we have done a while ago, it's developed into more of a sort of metacognitive strategy as well and a, a bit of an approach to try and help them understand where they are with the learning. Super. Um, last two questions for you because I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm trying to, trying to catch here. Um, I love this as well that you said. You, you, you had, and you used this a couple of times throughout the session, you, you have a, a six-word phrase that you've started using in your lessons and it's, ask me a question about this. Where, where did that come from and why? So, um, if I had my phone and my Twitter, I'd be able to tell you exactly who shared it over the summer um, and I'll maybe tweet that yeah. out later. But uh, I feel I've known this before, but I've never realised how powerful those six words are. You know, I think, I, think, I think we all know that just sort of saying, has anybody got any questions, is maybe not the best way to really elicit a good conversation about misconceptions. So for a while I was spending ages thinking, after I've um, shown pupils a new uh, topic or we've worked on some new example problem pairs, I was then trying to think, right, I need to ask them a good question. Yes. What would happen if this was a negative? Yes. Would this always work? How can you be sure? All these great questions, I thought, I'm doing really well. I've come up with all these good questions. And then I met this phrase, and it just turned it all on its head. Ask me a question about this. So we'll do an example problem pair, maybe more than um, just one pair. We might have a couple of pairs on the board. And when I feel we've got to a point where there's definitely some rich discussion, I'll just stop and say, ask me a question about this. And initially, initially, they're not really very good at it. They're not forthcoming with sure. it. But we've developed a climate in the room where, you know, wrong answers are accepted and, and, and anybody's ideas are valued. So the, quest, the questions start coming out and they all expose the misconceptions that I know live in there anyway. But I know I don't need to think about that. The, the pupils are doing that for me. And they can surprise you. They can come out with some great, great things. And um, one example that I've got just from the other day, we're looking at factorising a quadratic the unitary x squared coefficient, and we ended up with x's at the front of the, of the brackets there. And uh, one of them, um, he put up his hand and he said, well, would it not also be true that we could put negative x's at the front of both of those brackets mm. to multiply together to make the x squared? Uh, I just thought, that's brilliant. Yes. That's a great question. How often do people yes, come up with something yes, yes. as interesting and as insightful as that? And that's because in a retrieval recently, we'd been talking about uh, square roots and positive and negative square roots and... Uh, I think he connected up knowledge from essentially unrelated topic to an extent or what would usually be seen as maybe unrelated and he's trying to apply it into this new so fantastic ask me a question about this I love it really great phrase I'm not claiming uh, that I came up with it at all but it's very very powerful that's super and the final 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 thing um, is what I absolutely loved as well was your um, I, I tweeted a picture about this the way you've kind of built in interleaving or spacing in terms of your kind of low stakes quizzes where you have the 12 questions and the first four are kind of from the current topic or the current learning objective, but then you have a really kind of systemized approach for ensuring that prior learning objectives get kind of flagged up regularly over time. And I just, yeah, if you just want to talk about that very briefly. Yeah, it's, 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 I don't suppose it's that complicated, but it's much better seen visually. So I'll tweet out a picture of that slide so yes. um, so listeners, if they're interested, can, can see what I mean there. And essentially, practice is important. I want them to do practice of the same skill, the thing that we've been learning and working on. Um, if it can be intelligently varied, then um, that's, that's even better. 
but I also want them to do practice of, of things that we've seen uh, over the over the past few learning experiences. And with this sort of schedule that I've kind of been working on and working with, there's a there's a there's an increase in time, so that uh, say. Um, we're working on a skill today, we do practice of that and then we'll, we'll do some practice of yesterday, day before, day before. But then the next questions will be five days mm. before, ten days before, twenty days before. So we're sort of expanding the retrieval schedule in that way. And what that's doing, well in theory anyway, is that it's increasing the, the, the challenge for, for the learners because they haven't seen it for a while now. They're trying to retrieve that from their memory. So we're bringing in that desirable difficulty and we're hoping that that builds the, the stro stronger st storage strength. Super. Fantastic. Well, it was a fascinating session, Stuart, and I, I think there may be a demand for you to return to this podcast because there's a lot more and I want to ask you about this. Um, well, I hope you found that useful. Um, I'm certainly knackered at the end of today, but it but in a good way. Um, I absolutely love these maths conferences. Um, Mark McCourt should be knighted for, for putting these on. If you have opportunity to, to, to go to one of these, whether it's Scotland, England, wherever, get yourself along. It's, 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 absolutely, it's absolutely brilliant. A massive thank you to Stuart for joining me, being my co-host. At the end of the, uh, at the end of again a tiring day for, for you and to, to Glasgow High School your school this isn't it is absolutely beautiful venue and um, lovely food as well very very happy with that great I'm, I'm, I'm delighted you've had a good day it was absolutely super um, and thank you loyal listeners for keeping tuning in um, I will be at future maths conferences throughout the rest of the year with conference takeaways but also back with some long form interviews and I've got some absolute A star guests lined up um, over the coming weeks and months so check those out anyway that's it from me so farewell from me Farewell from Stuart. Cheerio, folks. And you take care of yourselves. Bye for now.